Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, my friends, and welcome to the last episode of Criminal Broads for now. Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host. It has been my pleasure to be with you here for three years, I think, with a big break in the middle to have a baby. (laughs) I hear your sadness that the podcast is ending. I am moved by it and touched by it and flattered by it and if it doesn't like make your brain irritated to stay subscribed to the podcast when it's not active, then stay subscribed to the podcast. Criminal Broads may be back in a slightly different format at some point. I'm definitely not done with the podcast world. I'm not flouncing away from you, I promise. I just am unable to do it all right now. And you know what? I said this like a year and a half ago or two years ago when I went on the break to have my baby and then I came back. So don't despair. Don't despair. I'm still here in some form or another. I'm going to put a bunch of links in the show notes for how to stay in touch. My email, Instagram, newsletter, website, etc. So just go there to find them or you can always just Google me, Tori Telfer, ToriTelfer.com. If my contact page doesn't pop up, then I've messed up the SEO of my website and that would be like me. So I'm not saying that it's going to pop up, but I, I actually think it does. All right. Before we get into today's story, I asked you last episode to nominate the most loathed, the most despicable people we've ever covered on this podcast. And three names have emerged three big names. Several of you have nominated Larry Singleton from two episodes ago, the man who attacked Mary Vincent, who cut off her hands and left her for dead. And then after getting out of prison, relatively short sentence, he went down to Florida and full-on killed another woman. Yeah, truly in terms of like individual criminals, like people working for themselves and not for a system. I think the most loathsome person we've never covered. And aren't we kind of glad he's not abroad? It's like, no, we've covered some bad criminal broads. But Larry, you don't even get to be part of that group. You are other. We reject you. The other two names that emerged were more part of a system, but that doesn't excuse anything they did. There was a little person called a dictator, Rafael Trujillo from the Mirabel Sisters episode, who, yes, I agree. I mean, hard to top that one, how many people he killed. But another one I think could give him a run for his money, not in terms of body count, but just in terms of absolute evil, Irma Greza, the hyena of Auschwitz. I forgot that we covered her. We covered her, I think it was in episode 29, so it was a long time ago. But you guys have excellent memories and brought her up. And yes, she definitely deserves a place on the the ranking of most vile people we've ever discussed on this podcast. And then one of you, deep cut, (laughs) said, I think about that family of settlers in the Midwest all the time. And I believe you are talking, dear listener, about the Bender family, the Bloody Benders. That was like episode two or three of the podcast. So I'm very impressed you remember it 
yeah, the benders were pretty terrifying. It's like if you like a cozy B&B where you can go and get a home-cooked meal, you're going to like the bender story up until the point where they're bashing you over the head and then slitting your throat, rolling you into the cellar, maybe still alive, stealing all your money, and then burying you in a shallow grave and being like, we have no idea what happened. So, yeah, I'm going to give them honorable mention. I don't think they quite defeat the others in terms of sheer evil, but definitely deserve an honorable mention. All right. Um, The fact that many of you brought up the hyena of Auschwitz is fitting because we are doing another World War II story on this podcast today. Several years ago, we did a two-part series on World War II that was very popular. I think it was one of my most commented on episodes. I got the most gasps of horror and then like cheers of victory from you all from those two. First, we covered Irma Greza, who was, gosh, she was creepily young. I think she was maybe 21 when she died, like 19 when she started. But she worked at Auschwitz as a, uh, you know, I don't remember her specific role, but as a guard, I guess, a female guard of some sort, just an absolute sociopath. So we began with that episode and then we palate cleansed with an episode that I called The Nazi Killers, in which we covered several stories of women who fought back against the Nazis. There were a couple stories of spies. And my personal favorite was this Russian sniper who killed like 300 Nazis. It's just like a story you, let's just say, don't hear every day. So that episode was super popular. I feel like we really needed it after going into the darkness of Auschwitz. It just got a great reaction from you. So when I was thinking of what episode to end on, I was like, I don't want to end on a story of a super famous, big, evil woman. Like, I don't want to go there for this final episode. This is not going to be a cheerful episode at all. We're talking about World War II, truly one of the most traumatizing things that has ever happened to this planet. But I wanted to do a story that was inspiring in some way that you could root for the broad at the center of it. So we're doing another story of a female spy, technically a female secret agent. And I love this story because (laughs) And do I say this every episode or what? It's not the clear-cut narrative of the movies where you have the makeover montage about how she gets really good at the spy, and then she does her spy stuff, and then she gets her spy awards. Woo! There's some bumps in the road. This woman is both extraordinary and a heroine to all of us, and like a really normal person (laughs) who's very relatable and sometimes gets in trouble for being spacey or like a little bit rude to her dad or just (laughs) some very human things. So I thought it was a good story to end on. It's a long story, and this introduction is long. So I'll let you go and we'll get into it. We are going to Europe And our heroine is born in 1921, but of course, most of the action is going to be in the dreadful years of 1939 to 1945, the years of World War II. Let's go. When Violette began her training as a secret agent, everybody loved her, but nobody knew what to do with her. 
She confused her instructors as she trekked through freezing mud and learned how to jump out of a plane and where on the human body you should plunge a knife if you were trying to kill your enemy but you didn't have your machine gun with you. Violette was tough and confident and bold and enthusiastic, and she got along great with other people. But then other times she'd fall into a dark depression, or she'd fail to ask the right questions, like, what happens if I complete this mission? What happens if I fail? One of her supervisors called her a puzzle. No one could decide if she should continue on with the training. Did she have what it took to be a secret agent? The real grit? The spine of iron? Why was she even here, anyway? What did she hope to get out of this? Violette probably could have explained why she was having a bit of trouble with her training if anyone had asked her. Her mind was in two places. She was the mother of a one-year-old girl who was far away in the care of others. Her husband was dead. Of course she was tough some days and depressed others. Who wouldn't be? As far as why she wasn't asking questions about the future and why she was even trying to be a secret agent in the first place, (laughs) it was simple. She was there for the clearest, most unadorned reason in the world. She wanted to avenge her husband's death. She wanted to kill Nazis. Violette Reine Elizabeth Bouchel was born in France to an English father and a French mother. She was born in June of 1921, the year of the first Miss America pageant, the year F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda traveled to Europe for the first time to party their brains out. It was a frothy, champagne-drenched sort of time, if you were a young person with a short haircut and money to burn— This was a world that had just finished the Great War, a world ecstatic that the fighting was over, a world that couldn't imagine a day when the Great War would have to change its name to World War I. Violette and her older brother Roy moved back and forth between France and England for a while as their dad went in search of work. They often stayed with relatives and sometimes stayed apart from each other. It must have been a fairly lonely childhood at first. But by the time the Bushell family was reunited in England, Violette and Roy had two younger brothers, and then a third, until Violette was the only girl in a household of wild boys. She was a tomboy from early on, and would always be called a tomboy, even in articles about her death. She'd race right alongside her brothers, climb trees and scale walls, and shoot guns right next to them. She and her brothers still spoke French to each other, and they were teased for this. Every time they spoke the language, some of their more paranoid neighbors clutched their pearls, sure that these foreign-looking kids were gossiping about them. Everyone who remembers Violette always talks about how much fun she was. She was full of life, always up for a dare, extremely physical. She joined a cycling club, and she and her older brother would bike around the countryside on trips that lasted up to 100 miles. She taught her cousin how to sneak into the London Zoo without paying. Always cheerful, her brother called her, with a devil-may-care attitude. 
She'd have this attitude with her for the rest of her life, this idea that she was going to do her thing, come what may. The one thorn in her side was her father. The two of them really didn't get along. They were always arguing. Once, after a particularly bad argument, Violette ran away. This wasn't the type of runaway attempt that many kids make, where you angrily stuff a granola bar into your backpack and sprint to the local park for 40 minutes. No, Violette truly ran away. She packed her passport and a change of clothes. She snuck onto a boat that crossed the English Channel, and she ended up in France, where she tracked down her aunt's house, discovered that her aunt wasn't there, and then miraculously managed to track down her aunt. You might say that this was her first mission, and it was a resounding success. Her family was on pins and needles for days, until they finally got word from France that little Violette was perfectly safe. At 14, Violette dropped out of school. She wanted a job. Her first job was at a place that made corsets, and there she was basically an intern, bringing people coffee and sweeping the floors. She hated it. Her next job was as a sales assistant at a store called Woolworth, which lured in customers with its cheap prices— And she liked this job better, given that it was more social, and Violette was always social. Even though she was skeptical of jobs that were typically given to women, she loved clothes, and so it was fun for her to work around the clothes at Woolworth. Her mother was a dressmaker, and so Violette had grown up around well-tailored outfits. She herself liked to experiment with her fashion, which impressed some and scandalized others. A neighbor remembered that in summer, Violette would wear shorts, shocking, and cuff them, scandalous, and then she would tie her shirt up so that it exposed her midriff. Outrageous. She was definitely ahead of her time, said the neighbor. It had to be noted just how pretty Violette was. She had hair so dark it looked like it could have had a bit of blue in it. Honestly, she looked like she could have been a movie star, with her flawless chin line and her perfect eyebrows and dark eyes and gently waved hair. Plus, she was fun and chatty and confident, and so it wasn't very surprising that men were always falling in love with her. She had several boyfriends, one of whom lived nearby. He would open his window and play a song from Madame Butterfly on his gramophone so loudly that Violette could hear it too from her room. But none of these boyfriends were serious. They were the sort to ride bikes with, to joke around with. She didn't seem truly in love until she met her Frenchman. And she only met her Frenchman because something new was looming in the background of her life. Something terrible, bloody, ominous. Something that she, as a teenager, paid no attention to at first. War. Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. First up, let's talk about Calm, the app, and let's talk about sleep. We love it and we struggle with it. Do we not, fellow humans? I can't be the only one. If you struggle with your sleep, have trouble going to sleep, staying asleep, thinking about sleep, popping up too early, I need you to meet Calm. 
the number one mental wellness app that literally, when you open it on your phone, starts playing the world's most soothing music and will give you tools that help you improve the way you feel. I'm talking about sleep here because their sleep meditations are amazing and make your body just melt like butter into your mattress, but they also have guided daily meditations or curated music tracks to help you improve your focus and thus be better at life. And they have even sleep stories like one read by Mary Berry of the Great British Baking Show that will just like soothe you and let you relax and drift off to sleep thinking about British tea time. If you are interested in trying out the app, for listeners of this show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash criminal broads. Just go to calm.com slash criminal broads for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash criminal broads. Our second sponsor is Dame. There is nothing like a Dame, everyone. As we've mentioned on this show several times already, life is full of relationships and relationships are important and should be supported. And now the product Dame makes is not for every relationship in your life. Oh, no, 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 no. But it's for those special ones, those primary ones, those relationships you have with a romantic partner. Yes, we're talking about toys for intimacy. Dame Products was founded by a sex educator and an engineering whiz, and it develops all its products with the help of real humans and couples like you. Their easy-to-use products are made with smart design principles and lots of love and have earned glowing press from places like, oh, I don't know, the New York Times, etc. If you're unsure of what you're looking for, don't worry, Dame has a product quiz. Just take it, beep, 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 click, 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 submit, and they'll give you product recommendations, and you can take it from there. So if you're intrigued, just go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. Again, go to dameproducts.com slash criminalbroads today for 15% off site-wide. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland, and the Second World War began. Germany was led by a man who gave himself the nickname Wolf, Adolf Hitler, a man who dreamed of a world under his new order in which a master race of Aryan Nordic people would control Europe. In this world, Jewish people, Slavic people, Roma people, and anyone else he considered racially inferior or unworthy of life would be slaughtered, and Germany would be free to expand across Europe and maybe eventually across the entire world like the angel of death with his wings open wide. To achieve this dream of Hitler's, Poland had to fall first, and so Germany invaded. Two days later, France and the United Kingdom declared war on Germany. Now both of Violette's home countries were involved, and soon enough her family was affected too. Her dad started working as an air raid warden, and three of her four brothers signed up to fight as soon as they were old enough. 
the fourth was still too young. Despite all this, the war seemed surreal to Violette and a bit impersonal. It didn't start feeling personal until the following spring, when her beloved France fell to German invaders. By June 23, 1940, Hitler himself was posing for smug photos in front of the Eiffel Tower. Suddenly, Violette felt like she had to do something. They were in France, her homeland. She had to help. She quit her job, which was then as a perfume saleswoman, and joined something called the Women's Land Army. But she was disappointed when her mission, should she choose to accept it, was being sent to a farm to pick the strawberry crop. This wasn't the glorious, save-the-world type work she'd envisioned for herself. She quit after the strawberries were harvested. In the meantime, London was filling up with French citizens who had fled the Nazis. Many of them were French soldiers who'd come to London to meet up with a promising French officer named Charles de Gaulle. He was busy starting an army called the Free French Forces, an army designed to fight against Germany and its allies and eventually, hopefully, ideally, to retake France for its own. The fact that the Free French Forces were forming in London meant that, well, a lot of very handsome young Frenchmen were now gathering in London to fight. They were wearing their uniforms, their eyes blazed with a sense of purpose, their muscles could have cut glass. It wasn't the worst place in the world for a straight teenage girl to find herself. Anyway, these Frenchmen planned to hold a parade in London on July 14th, Bastille Day, And Violette's mom, who was a French woman herself, told Violette and her friend to head out to the parade and find the nearest homesick Frenchman and invite the poor guy home for a nice French meal. So the girls went to the parade and lurked about awkwardly. As it turned out, it was hard to just invite a random man back to your mom's house. It came across a little aggressive. But finally, one of these French soldiers did the work for them. He was a bit older. 30 years old, and his name was Sergeant Major Etienne Sabo. Rumor has it that he asked Violette for the time, and she laughed when she looked at his wrist and saw a watch and realized that he was just flirting with her. She invited him to dinner. The two of them found themselves really hitting it off. Before Etienne left that night, he asked Violette if he could see her again. Their courtship was speedy, as wartime courtships often are. They saw as much of each other as they could while he was still in London, and then when he was shipped south to his army camp, they sent a flurry of letters back and forth. Before long, he was asking Violette's parents for her hand in marriage. Violette was a minor, and so she needed her parents' permission to wed. Her parents were shocked. The two of them barely knew each other, and the age difference. Their daughter was only 19. But if there was one thing the Bushells had learned in their decades on this green earth— It was that life was easier if you let Violette get her way. Their daughter was strong-willed, independent, insistent. And if she didn't get her way, she just might run away to France. Yes, Etienne, they said. You can marry our girl. The wedding was a humble affair. After all, there was a world war going on. There would be no long white veil for Violette, no banquet hall set with hundreds of candles, no little canapes passed around by waiters in black. They were married on August 21st, 1940, at a registry office near where Etienne was stationed. She wore a striped dress, a chic belted coat, a dark hat pulled down over one eye. 
He wore his army uniform. The rest of the world didn't stop for their vows. That same day, Leon Trotsky died in Mexico City, assassinated by a Russian agent after a long career spent criticizing Hitler's dictator best friend, Stalin. Still, Violette and Etienne sank into a honeymoon bubble together and forgot about the rest of the world for one week. After that week, Etienne was sent to West Africa to fight, and Violette wouldn't see him for another year. If you're thinking, West Africa? Then let me just remind you, this was a world war. West Africa was then under the control of Vichy France, which was basically the bad French state that collaborated with the Nazis during occupation. Long story short, Etienne and his men were sent there to try and convince Vichy France's army to join up with them, the Free French Forces, and try and get their country back together. It didn't work. With her new husband marching across the desert, Violette found herself terribly bored. There was a war raging, and she had nothing to do. Etienne didn't want her to work. Maybe it was for her safety. Maybe it was just an old-fashioned sort of husbandly demand. So she sat around, waiting for his letters, and wishing there was something she could do to help with the war effort. Finally, her boredom grew so extreme that she took a temporary job— thinking that that was a clever way around Etienne's no-work-for-my-wife rule. She began working as a switchboard operator in London and worked through most of the London Blitz when German planes relentlessly bombed the city. Eventually, even the place where she worked was bombed. She wasn't in the building, thankfully, but that was pretty much the end of that job. She was safe, but her old restlessness quickly returned. Almost precisely a year after her wedding, Violette finally got to see her husband again. Etienne flew to Liverpool. Violette met him there, and the two had a second honeymoon. Like their first, this one was only one week long. Then he returned to the fighting, this time flying into North Africa, and Violette went back to London to live with her parents. She had found a solution for her boredom, though. She'd managed to convince Etienne to let her join the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which was the women's branch of the British Army. Many of the women in the ATS were given jobs like cook or baker or tailor. Important jobs that really did help the war effort, but jobs that Violette didn't want. With her history as a corset maker's intern and a perfume saleswoman, She really didn't want a job that had the slightest whiff of women's work. She wanted to be where the men were, doing the things that men got to do. And her wish was granted when Private Violette Sabo was assigned to the section of the ATS that dealt with heavy anti-aircraft guns. She was sent to northern England to help gun German planes down from the sky. Okay, so Violette wasn't actually allowed to fire the guns. Only men could fire the guns because the British government didn't think it was right for, quote, life givers to be life takers. 
Still, the women in her section soon proved just how valuable they were in the anti-aircraft field. They really shone when it came to the calculations. They had to figure out the best way for the missile to hit the plane by predicting the plane's path, measuring the plane's height, and so on. It was complicated work with far more math than I personally am comfortable with, but Violette did it brilliantly. She and her colleagues were called Gunner Girls, or Ak-Ak Girls. She herself was known as Gunner Sabo. Locals who lived in terror of bombs raining down on them from the sky found the existence of these Gunner Girls incredibly soothing. As one local told one of the girls, whenever we heard the guns open up, it gave us a bit of hope to hold on to. When Violette wasn't figuring out how to get missiles to slam into the sides of German airplanes, she was making friends, like she always did. She was very popular among the gunners, and on one particularly memorable night, everyone put on a talent show, and Violette performed a belly dance. She got so into it that she concluded the dance by somersaulting backwards, and part of her costume flew off. She was terribly embarrassed, but everyone loved it. Though she really thrived while doing this work, her time as a gunner girl was cut short when she found out she was pregnant. She worked as long as she could, but before long, her first trimester symptoms were so bad that she had to stop. At first, she moved home, but the old arguments with her dad started up again. He nagged her about her life choices, and she ended up finding her own apartment in London rather than stay with her parents on the outskirts of the city. Better to risk German air raids than to be with her father. As her due date crept closer and closer, Etienne was in the Libyan desert, crouched underground, waiting for the German army. On June 3, 1942, the fighting began. Germans bombed him from above as their tanks rolled towards him below. Five days later, his daughter was born. Her name was Tanya. But the Germans didn't break for birth. In the desert, most of the French troops were hiding underground, but they had tents of wooden soldiers above ground. These tents were marked with red crosses to indicate, these men are hurt, leave them alone. The Germans ignored the red crosses and bombed the tents anyway. It was a miracle that any Frenchman survived the battle, but one night, as the Germans slept, the Frenchmen rose up from their trenches and crept forward, on foot, through the one gap in the German line. When the Germans came racing forward the next day to finish them off, they were shocked to find that nobody was there. After this battle was over, Etienne got the news from Violette that their daughter had been born. He was overjoyed and desperate to be granted leave so that he could fly to London and meet his baby. But the months ticked by, June into July, into August, September, October, and he wasn't allowed to go. By the end of October, he and his men were in Egypt, being asked to do the impossible. They needed to creep over a plane covered in landmines while German and Italian troops fired at them. And then if they survived that, they needed to scale the rocky, vertical side of a mountain— And if they managed to get to the top, well, then they needed to fight all the Germans and Italians that they'd find there. The Frenchmen tried again and again. It was while climbing up that mountain, leading his men straight into the maw of the enemy, that Etienne was hit 
It was while being taken away in an ambulance that he was hit again, either by enemy fire or by a landmine. He didn't survive. The battle raged on, so bad that even the German general wanted to retreat. But Hitler wrote him a scathing letter, saying, Yield not a meter of ground, and throw every gun and every man into the battle. As to your troops, you can show them no other road than that to victory or death. In the meantime, Violette was writing happy letters to her dead husband, telling him all about how amazing their little girl was. The battle where Etienne died, which would become known as the Second Battle of El Alamein, was eventually won by the Allies, which included the Free French Forces. Winston Churchill would later say, It may almost be said, before Alamein we never had a victory. After Alamein, we never had a defeat. But it certainly didn't feel like a victory for Violette. She'd been working at a factory when she got the news making aircraft switch gears. But when she learned that her husband had been mowed down by enemy fire, not once, but twice, she quit. She couldn't function for weeks. She cut off the world around her. She could hardly find consolation or joy in her baby. Then she swung the other way, going out with her friends constantly, dancing until all hours of the morning, socializing like a madwoman. She was heartbroken. But more than that, she was angry. So, so angry at the people who'd taken her new husband from her. The Nazis. And then one day, Violette got... A mysterious letter. It was from a man named Selwyn Jepson, asking her to meet him at his office. She thought it must have something to do with her husband's pension, and so she headed to the meeting. There, Selwyn brought up the fact that she spoke French. This was very good, he said. Potentially useful. Could be advantageous in something like a, well, a covert role. Do you mean a spy, Violette blurted? As it turned out, the mysterious meeting was far more enigmatic than Violette could have ever guessed. She was being recruited for a shadowy organization called the SOE, the Special Operations Executive. If you can't tell what the Special Operations Executive did from the rather vague title, well, the SOE wanted it that way. This was a secret organization created the month after France fell to the Nazis, the same time when Violette's desire to join the war effort was really ramping up. Winston Churchill, the prime minister, told his Minister of Economic Warfare to create an organization that would help local resistance movements in France, in Belgium, in Greece, anywhere that was controlled by the Nazis. Set Europe ablaze, Churchill said, And the SOE was formed to do just that. Its agents would be dropped into enemy territory by parachutes, where they had to live behind enemy lines under strict alter egos. It was incredibly dangerous work. Of the SOE agents who worked in France, about one-fourth of them 
never came home. When Violette asked Selwyn, do you mean a spy? He told her, well, not exactly, but this role can be unconventional and a bit dangerous. That was enough for Violette. She needed work, and she'd been longing to do something more meaningful, more boots on the ground than strawberry picking or making airplane parts. Yes, she said. She was definitely interested. And so Violette began her training. Do you remember the training scene in the movie Mulan, where Mulan is really bad at first, but then she gets better and better, and before long she's hitting all her targets and running uphill while carrying weights and fighting with perfect form? That scene is so satisfying because it happens in a perfect arc from bad to good. If only Violette's training went the same way. She did really well at some things and really terrible at other things, and her instructors kept writing memos basically saying, hmm, I'm not sure this young woman is cut out for the spy life. Her training started in August of 1943, and for the first section of training, she got a D grade overall with this painful note. A quiet, physically tough, self-willed girl of average intelligence. Out for excitement and adventure, but not entirely frivolous. Has plenty of confidence in herself and gets on well with others. Plucky and persistent in her endeavors. Not easily rattled. In a limited capacity, not calling for too much intelligence and responsibility, and not too boring, she could probably do a useful job, possibly as a courier. In a limited capacity, not calling for too much intelligence and responsibility? Ouch! Still, she was sent on to the next level of training, the paramilitary part. Here, Violette learned how to memorize a route in case her map was destroyed. She learned where exactly on the human body she should plunge a knife in order to be the most effective. How to operate foreign weapons. How to fight like a guerrilla warrior. How to crawl across rough terrain on her belly while remaining undetected as she approached her target. And more. At the next level, she learned to recognize German military uniforms. How the Gestapo was organized. How to code and decode how to shimmy out of handcuffs, how to survive off the land by killing her own food, how to shadow, how to evade someone if she was being shadowed. She was also, and this is key, trained to jump out of an airplane with a parachute. Like I said earlier, SOE agents were usually parachuted into enemy territory, so this was a vital skill. At first, Violette learned how to jump from tall heights, how to fall and roll forward to avoid injury, but when it came to her first real jump out of a plane, she landed wrong, and she hurt her ankle so badly that she had to leave training entirely and recover at home. There's a picture of her from this time, smiling and sitting in a wheelchair. She hadn't lost her nerve, but that bad ankle would come back to haunt her. She got a few more embarrassing reports during this level of training. I seriously wonder whether this student is suitable for our purpose, one instructor wrote. She seems lacking in a sense of responsibility, and although she works well in the company of others, does not appear to have any initiative or ideals. She speaks French with an English accent. Later, though, this same instructor recommended that Violette continue on with the training. She was very temperamental, he wrote, ranges from enthusiasm to depression for no apparent reason at all. 
She was a puzzle, he said, but has proven to possess certain qualities which I never would have expected her to have, and for this reason I consider it advisable for her to carry on with the training. Surely no one who knew Violette during training would have foreseen her future, when her name would be on monuments across Europe. People liked her, but no one thought she was all that extraordinary. After Violette's ankle recovered, she had to complete her parachute training before graduating. In February of 1944, she took the parachute course a second time. She was very nervous on the first jump, but she finished it successfully, and then she jumped from the plane two more times. Her instructor noted that she completed those final two jumps with verve. The old Violette was back. Now she was ready to go behind enemy lines to the land of her birth, a land crawling with Nazis. She left Tanya with a friend and asked the friend if she would raise Tanya if something happened to Violette. She really didn't want her parents raising her child, since she and her father got along so poorly. The last thing she did before she left was write her will. She left everything that she had, and it wasn't much, to her tiny daughter, And then she climbed into the plane and prepared to jump. Violette's first mission concerned one of the SOE's networks of spies, called circuits. This particular circuit, called the Salesman Circuit, had been compromised. Several members had been arrested, but the SOE didn't know whether or not they were talking. They didn't know just how compromised the circuit was. So Violette and her team needed to go to France to find out. What did the Germans know? What was still safe? Could the circuit be saved? Did it need to be abandoned completely? On the night of April 5th, 1944, Violette and her colleague, Philippe Lever, parachuted into France. Violette's English identity had been scrubbed from her. She was now Corinne Reine Leroy, a French secretary. All her clothes were made in the French style. Everything in her purse, from her coins to her brand of cigarettes, was French. She was 22 years old when she plunged through the air that night, and when she landed, tangled in her parachute, she heard voices in the darkness. She froze, thinking that the Germans were nearby. But no, they were speaking French. They were fellow resistance fighters sent to rescue her. She and Philippe were taken to a nearby safe house, and the next day they went on to Paris. And then Violette got on a train, alone, to head north to Rouen, to see if the salesman circuit could be saved. The train was crawling with German soldiers, and what do you know? They all wanted to help Violette. They insisted on helping her find her seat, giving her a cigarette, helping her to get a drink of water. Men always swarmed around her, and apparently German soldiers were no different. But she tried to talk to them as little as possible, so that her English accent wouldn't emerge. She got to Rouen safely, but what she found there was grim. The city was plastered with photos of SOE agents that she was working with, including Philippe. Clearly, the Nazis knew things. 
She snooped around, as delicately as possible, of course, and found that most of the circuit members had been arrested. Some had been tortured. Others would eventually be murdered. And so she went back to Paris with her depressing report. In Paris, all the street signs were in German now, and people walked around in wooden clogs because there was no leather left to make shoes. She and Philippe had a few days before they had to sneak back out of the country, and so Violette made time for a rather incongruous activity. She went shopping. Paris may have been occupied, but it was still full of fabulous fashion, and she couldn't resist. She bought perfume for her mother and a little dress for Tanya. The dress was too big for her daughter, since there were no clothes for tiny children sold in Paris then, because all the tiny children had been evacuated. But Violette knew that it would fit her daughter someday. For herself, she went wild, buying three very expensive dresses in black, red plaid, and a floral print, if you're curious, and a pair of earrings, more perfume, and a yellow sweater. She may have been a secret agent whose life was perpetually at risk now, but she was also a 22-year-old girl who loved good clothes. The flight back from Paris was terrifying. She and Philippe were taken in separate planes, and during the flight, Germans started firing at Violette and her pilot. The pilot, Bob, had to fly like a maniac to avoid the fire, and Violette was thrown around in the back of the plane like a piece of popcorn. The Germans hit one of their plane's wheels, and so the landing in England was so bumpy that Violette was convinced they'd been shot down and that this was a crash landing. When the pilot, Bob, jumped out of the plane and came around to help her get out, she screamed at him. She hadn't seen him before because he'd been at the front of the plane, and he was blonde, and she thought he was a German soldier. When Bob finally managed to make her understand what was going on, she was so relieved that she flung her arms around his neck and kissed him. Later, he said that the kiss made the whole terrifying flight worth it. At home, Violette was promoted. The memo about her promotion was very different from the snarky notes she received during secret agent training. Just returned from an important mission in the field, which she has performed admirably, the memo said. It was time for mission number two, but first, some time with her daughter. Tanya only has two memories of her mother. At least, she thinks the pretty woman in her memories was her mother, who she later called her lovely lady. In one memory, her mother is taking her for a walk in the stroller, talking to her and smiling at her. And then, when the sunny day turned cloudy and the stroller's top went up, Tanya remembers crying because she couldn't see her mom anymore. In the other memory, Tanya is standing with her grandmother and watching that pretty lady walk away from them. They're waving and saying goodbye, and suddenly the lady disappears down a dark hole. Later, Tanya realized that the dark hole was the mouth of the train station and that her mother was leaving for her second mission to France. For this mission, Violette and her colleagues were going to establish a circuit to replace a portion of the doomed salesman circuit. 
This one would be called Salesman 2. It took forever for the mission to start. In fact, her team was on a plane flying to France on D-Day, but they had to turn around when they realized that their contacts in France weren't waiting for them. D-Day, for anyone who needs a refresher, was a huge invasion of France by the Allied forces. Hours after Dwight Eisenhower said, Okay, we'll go. Thousands and thousands of ships left England and landed on the shores of Normandy, France, before advancing inland. There was still a lot of war left to go on D-Day. Eleven months. But when those boats landed on the shores of France, it marked the beginning of the end of Nazi rule. Violette and her colleagues were pretty annoyed when they found that they had literally been flying over all the D-Day action. They grumbled to themselves that if someone had just told them about D-Day, they could have looked through the parachute jumping hole at the bottom of their plane to see the ships. But oh well. The night after D-Day, they left again for France. Before jumping out of the plane, Violette kissed all eight members of the plane's crew. For luck. Then... She winked at the youngest member of her team, a 19-year-old American boy, before jumping into the blackness below. Her team had been led to believe that they'd find a well-oiled resistance movement waiting for them. But this was not the case. Philippe wrote scathingly that the resistance group that met them was strictly not trained and commanded by the most incapable people I have ever met. Still, they forged ahead. Violette's assignment was to meet up with the leader of another circuit, the Digger Circuit. The night before she left, she went for a walk with the 19-year-old American boy, who, let's be honest, was probably wildly in love with her. They talked under the stars, and she told him some of her big thoughts on what life was all about. People had to take chances in life, she said. She was going to take chances because she was determined that her life would make a difference. The next morning, she left on her mission. Another resistance fighter was going to drive her part of the way, and then she'd bike the rest of it. Remember, she was a great biker from those childhood days spent biking 100 miles around the English countryside with her brother. Her cover story was that she was the French widow of an antique dealer. But she insisted on heavily arming herself with a machine gun called a Sten gun. And ironically, the presence of that gun made her less safe— why would the widow of an antique dealer have a Sten gun strapped to her as she biked around the countryside? Still, Violette wanted it. As she'd told another SOE member earlier, she was here to kill Germans. So she strapped her bike to the back of the car, got in, and tucked her gun away. She and the driver picked up another resistance fighter, a young man who was going to accompany the driver on his way back, and they were off. As they drove toward a quiet little village called Salon Latou, they saw something menacing ahead. A German roadblock. They didn't know this, but the Germans were searching for one of their own. One of their leaders had been captured by some of the French resistance fighters. The Germans were stopping every car. What to do? The Germans could already see them. They couldn't turn their car around and speed off. That would look incredibly suspicious. And if the Germans searched their car, they'd see their weapons, including Violette's machine gun. The three of them had no choice. They were going to have to run. The driver gave a friendly wave to the Germans to indicate that he was totally going to cooperate. Nothing to see here. 
and then he whispered to Violette that she should jump out and run as soon as he stopped the car. The third member of their car, the young resistance fighter, didn't need to be told twice. He was unarmed, and running was his only hope. As soon as the car stopped, he jumped out of the back and sprinted away. The driver jumped out with his gun and started firing at the Germans. Violette jumped out of the passenger seat, but she didn't run. Instead, she whipped out her machine gun and started firing, too. One of the Germans went down, although it's hard to know who to credit for that death. As the driver fired steadily, Violette was able to fall back to a nearby wheat field, and from there, she fired at the Germans as the driver himself fell back and joined her. They started moving through the field. Sure, they were hidden, but before long, they heard machine guns spraying bullets dangerously close to where they were. They realized that as they walked, the wheat was moving with them, giving them away. So they dropped to their hands and knees and began to crawl. It was agonizing progress, and they knew their enemies were close by. They could hear them. Some of the Germans even ran into the wheat field to fire at them on foot, so Violette and the driver would take turns holding them off with their own gunfire as the other continued to crawl. At some point during this chaos, people think that Violette hurt her bad ankle again. Either she sprained it, or maybe a German bullet hit it, But either way, she realized that she wasn't going to make it. She wasn't going to be able to run. When she and the driver were almost at the far edge of the wheat field, she turned toward him and told him to go on without her. She was too exhausted, she said. She was bleeding, and her clothes were ripped to shreds. Go, she said. So he ran out of the wheat field toward a nearby farm and hid under a haystack there. About a half hour later, he heard Violette walk past him, but this time she was with the Germans. They asked her where her colleague was, and he heard her laugh. You can run after him, she said. He is far away by now. A girl from the farm there says that one of the German soldiers offered Violette a cigarette, perhaps charmed by her, like so many others, and she spat in his face and told him to free her arms because she could smoke her own cigarettes. Violette told the Germans that her name was Vicky Taylor. She was taken to the Gestapo headquarters and then to prison as the rest of her team scrambled to organize a rescue attempt. But before anything could be planned, she was moved again, and then no one in the SOE knew where she was. The work went on without Violette, of course. It had to. The Salesman 2 circuit continued to resist. They blew up bridges. They destroyed train tracks. They cut the electricity at submarine bases. Anything to hobble the Nazis, to keep them from their supplies, to foil their plans. No one forgot about Violette, though. When her team member Philippe got back to England, he recommended that Violette be given the highest possible decorations because of the great coolness and gallantry that she showed while fighting off the Germans. Was Violette tortured in prison? 
Some people have claimed passionately that she was, even that she was sexually assaulted. There was even, weirdly, a lawsuit between a writer who thought she wasn't tortured and some other people who insisted that she was. But her biographer, Susan Ottaway, has scoured the evidence and doesn't think that she was tortured. Violette herself even told someone during her imprisonment that she hadn't been tortured. Still, surely she feared being tortured. Surely she heard people being tortured or saw the results of torture. And she was certainly questioned. It seems like the Gestapo may have been planting ideas in her head, too. She told one of her fellow prisoners that she had been betrayed, that someone within the SOE had told the Germans exactly who she was and what she was up to. Susan Ottaway didn't find a lot of evidence for this, either, but she did note that the Gestapo had a nasty habit of convincing their prisoners that someone had ratted them out. It was a way of sowing paranoia and divisiveness. It probably got some of their prisoners to talk more. By early August of 1944, about two months after her capture, Violette was chained to seven other girls and thrown onto a crowded train and taken on a long, torturous journey toward that most terrible of Nazi constructions, the concentration camp. Two of the girls she was chained to were also SOE members, Denise Block and Lillian Rolfe, both wireless operators. They would become some of Violette's closest friends at the concentration camp. She may have also been chained to the SOE agent Noor Inayat Khan, who we covered in episode 30. Their chains connected their wrists to their ankles, and the chains were so short that the girls couldn't walk upright. They had to bend over and shuffle forward. After a terrible journey, during which their train was bombed by Allied forces, who apparently didn't realize that the train was full of prisoners, the girls arrived at the dreaded Ravensbrück a concentration camp just for women that was surrounded by gorgeous pine trees and situated by a peaceful lake. Ravensbrück was the sort of place that was so filthy it had its very own typhus epidemic. Prisoners were shot, sent to the gas chambers, sterilized, and given non-consensual amputations and bone transplants that often killed them. Some of them were forced to work in brothels, which were created to reward the male prisoners who worked extra hard. The on-site hospital was a nightmare place without a doctor. Instead, it was run by a female guard whose job was to give poison to sick prisoners. She was assisted not by nurses, but by two orderlies whose job was to beat the prisoners to death if they didn't take the poison. Violette arrived at Ravensbrück completely exhausted, but after a friend let her sneak into her bunk bed and sleep until evening roll call, Violette seemed to get some of her old spunk back. As days turned into weeks and months, Violette was always the one of the three SOE girls who kept her spirits up the most. She even started making plans to escape. Once, miraculously, she managed to get a key made that would have unlocked one of the Ravensbrück gates. But a fellow prisoner found out and ratted her out to the guards, and Violette had to throw the key away to avoid, well, probably to avoid being killed then and there. Still, as much as Violette tried to remain hopeful, the Nazi concentration camp system had a lot of experience when it came to breaking young women's spirits. Violette was transferred around to various work locations, each one awful, 
And as the winter arrived, she was given a job clearing trees and digging into the ice-cold ground so that the Germans could have themselves a nice new airfield. She and her fellow workers were fed with two tiny slices of bread per day, along with a soup that was made from water and dirty potato peels, with some dirty beet peels thrown in as a bonus. As the temperature plummeted, Violette was only allowed to wear one thin, short-sleeved dress. At one point, the cold almost made her lose her mind. She fell into her friend's arms, screaming, saying over and over again, I am so cold, so cold. Her friend warmed her slowly and then gave her a few potatoes that she'd managed to scavenge and had warmed by sticking them to the side of a stove for a while. And then suddenly things changed. Violette, Denise, and Lillian, the three SOE girls, were told that they were leaving the work camp and being sent back to Ravensbrück. Before they left, the Nazis gave them some gifts. They were given new clothes, well, old clothes, but new to them, and some soap and a comb. Violette was thrilled at the chance to clean herself, to get the lice out of her hair. But she wasn't thrilled about the sudden change of plans. When saying goodbye to one of her friends at the work camp, she wept and said that she had a feeling only horrible things were ahead of her. When she got back to Ravensbrück, the prisoners there were shocked to see how awful she looked, how thin and sick and worn down. All that, even though she'd carefully scrubbed herself and combed her hair for the first time in months. At Ravensbrück, things were off. Some of the other prisoners noticed that the guards were acting strangely. There were hurried meetings between officers and extra alcohol for the guards. The prisoners, who'd been there a long time, knew what all of this meant. The smell of death was in the air. Someone was going to be killed. And then one evening at 7 p.m., Violette, Denise, and Lillian were taken out to the courtyard by the crematorium. The camp's commander was waiting for them there with a little piece of paper. He read from it. It was an order for the three young women to be shot. One at a time, a corporal brought each secret agent forward. The others had to watch. Another corporal shot each of them through the back of the neck. They fell, one by one. A doctor stepped forward to confirm that each one was dead. And then Violette's body and Denise's body and Lillian's body were shoved into the crematorium and burned into nothingness. Denise was 29. Lillian was 30. Violette was 23. On May 8, 1945, Germany surrendered. Four months later, so did Japan. The war, the Second World War, was over. Hitler was dead, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head about a week before the surrender. 
The concentration camps were liberated by soldiers who would never forget the horrors they saw there. The people so thin they looked like skeletons. The unburied corpses. The things that weren't corpses but implied that there had been corpses, like the piles of shoes. Happy crowds celebrated the victory in the streets of allied countries. Others cried their hearts out over the millions who would never come home. Scholars believe that 70 to 85 million people died. That's about 3% of the total population of the world. And one of those millions was Violette. Her body was never recovered, of course, since it had been burned. And it took a long time before people knew exactly what had happened to her. It took 13 years for one of her friends from prison to track down her parents and tell them what she'd known of Violette. But slowly, after the war ended and as German officials were arrested and interrogated about what went on at those concentration camps, Violette's story emerged into the world's consciousness. And people were spellbound. This goofy 23-year-old girl who argued with her dad and snuck into the zoo and rushed into marriage and belly danced until her costume fell off and got embarrassingly bad grades at spy school was one of the great heroines of the war. She had been incredible from her missions in France to the bravery she showed while fighting the Germans to the spirit she kept in captivity and even down to the way she died. One of the commanders from Ravensbrück, now a prisoner himself, confirmed that she and Denise and Lillian had been killed, but he added, all three were very brave, and I was deeply moved. Once Violette's death was established, a war official wrote to her parents with the terrible news. Death was instantaneous, and the body was immediately cremated, he wrote. You must be very proud of the way your daughter maintained her calm, dignified courage throughout her ordeal. It is testimony to that courage that she impressed and moved even those who were responsible for her death. Today, Violette's name, along with the names of her friends and colleagues who never came home, is on a huge silver cross in France. And in London, not far away from the headquarters of the British Secret Intelligence Service, there's a little monument with a bronze bust on top of it. The bust is of Violette, and she stares ahead, unflinchingly, forever. The accompanying plaque reads, This monument is in honor of all the courageous SOE agents, those who did survive and those who did not survive their perilous missions. Their services were beyond the call of duty. In the pages of history, their names are carved with pride. It's not the only memorial Violette has been given. There's a movie about her called Carve Her Name with Pride. Her daughter, Tanya, has written a book called Young, Brave, and Beautiful. There's a museum about her. But perhaps the most emotional honor she received happened in January of 1947, when Violette's parents took little four-year-old Tanya to Buckingham Palace. There, at the palace, 
King George leaned forward and handed little Tanya a medal, a medal meant for her mother. It was the George Cross, a silver cross hanging from a dark blue ribbon. It's an award given for acts of the greatest heroism or for most conspicuous courage in circumstance of extreme danger. Tanya curtsied as the king handed her the cross. She was wearing the little silk dress that her mother had bought for her in Paris. my loves that's the end i hope you enjoyed this story as well as this very 101 intro to the sweeping history of world war ii you guys the reading i had to do about battles i was looking for like who won this battle question mark and what day did it start and i would just get these detailed breakdowns of like first plan a was implemented code name this next up that plan was discarded. Plan B was implemented. At the same time, the Italians were doing plans D through Z. And I was like, I don't know how to interpret this. Can you just tell me who won? And also, like, was it extra horrible? And should I mention that? War is hell, as they say. But reading descriptions of battle breakdowns, if you are not a military buff, is its own type of minor. I won't say hell. I'll say irritant. <laughs> Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the history in this episode. I couldn't resist throwing in, you know, a bit here and there. You guys, all my friends know that Criminal Broads, of all the podcasts in the world, has not the most listeners, maybe not the wealthiest listeners. <laughs> I'm not vibing you for not being millionaires. I'm not a millionaire either. I'm saying this in solidarity with you. But the best listeners. Seriously, all my friends know that I have the best listeners. My fellow podcasters know this. Just everyone I talk to, whoever gets a glimpse of the types of comments you guys leave or the types of emails you send. And I will also say the types of emails and comments you don't send me. I have gotten a couple, you know, emails that range from annoying to ugly over the years, but I thought I was going to get so many more. <laughs> Because it's part of the gig, right? It's part of the gig. Like, not everyone's going to like what you do. And I've just been blown away by the type of listeners I got. I don't know how you found this podcast, but just the way you interact with these stories is so caring and intelligent and sensitive. I remember being so afraid when I released the Lisa Montgomery episode, which is about the death penalty. Who wants to talk about the death penalty? Who wants to talk about the sort of crime she did? And you all received it with just like the most nuanced, loving arms. It's such a cliche to be like, there's no nuance anymore. Like everything's black and white, no shades of gray. But I feel like in these stories, there's only shades of gray. Well, no, 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 no. There's black and white. I'm sorry. We just did an episode that involved a world war and concentration camps. There is black and white in the world. There are things that are evil. There are things that are good. But there's also so much that's in between. And this podcast has so often tried to grapple with that. And I'm just so ugh, lucky that... I have listeners that were able to grapple with that with me, were willing to, were excited to. So again, I don't know where you came from, but I'm so glad you're here. And to the people who supported the podcast monetarily or 
just by a follow or a review or telling a friend. I mean, it's so helpful. And it's when you're a small independent podcast, those things are really felt like you really feel it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I feel guilty that this is the last episode for now, but I hope you don't feel like I'm abandoning you. I'm still going to be working and writing. Again, there'll be links in the show notes if you want to follow my other work. And I hope to return to the podcasting sphere someday. You know, if some friendly billionaire, emphasis on friendly, is listening to this podcast and is like, I really want to be a patron of the arts. Well, you know where to find me. Thank you to the people who've helped with the podcast. Cloud 10, my awesome network, who's helped me get the ads that you've heard on this show. Lit Hub Radio, my former awesome network. Jillian, my research assistant. Matt Noble, my editor. Everyone I've worked with. Oh, Anna Telfer, my sister, for the theme music in the conclusion. Everyone I've worked with on this podcast has been an absolute delight. All right, I'll stop rambling and let you go. I hope you enjoy the last few days of summer and have a brilliant fall ahead of you. And I will talk to you at a later date. Love you so much. Goodbye. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you.